Before we move on, listener discretion is advised given the subject matter we will be discussing in this podcast. There will be graphic descriptions of real-life violence and offensive language will be used throughout the show. Those of a young age or of a sensitive disposition should turn off now. Go on to the Metropolitan Police. A hate crime is when someone commits a crime against you because of your disability, gender identity, race, sexual orientation, religion or any other perceived difference. It doesn't always include physical violence, someone using offensive language towards you, or harassing you because of who you are or who you think you are is also a crime. The same goes for someone posting abusive or offensive messages about you online. first episode of the hate crime podcast i'm one of your hosts chris Britton, and joining me each week will be my colleagues from the pub politics podcast crime novelist hn lloyd and historian simon porter the hate crime podcast has been released as a companion episode to the technique productions performance of the laramie project we are lucky to have some of the scenes and interviews performed by the cast of the play but where possible we've used contemporary news reports in this episode, we tell the story of the case that not only defined hate crime in the U.S., but also gave its name to the law depicting hate crime as a federal offence. Laramie, Wyoming, located in the high plains between the Laramie and the Snowy Mountain Ranges, is often described as an almost stereotypical old western cowboy town with a proud railroad tradition. Laramie, Wyoming, located in the high plains between the Laramie and Snowy Mountain Ranges, is often described as an almost stereotypical old cowboy town, one with a proud railroad heritage. Take a walk downtown and you can feel the history, the heyday of this town, echoing along its main street. In 1998, the town became home to Matthew Shepard, a freshman attending the University of Wyoming. He'd returned here after several years studying abroad. It was while studying in Europe that, during a school trip to Morocco, Matthew had been beaten and raped. This horrific experience had caused bouts of depression, panic attacks and drug taking. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which forced him to be hospitalised for depression and suicidal thoughts. Following his ongoing treatment, Matthew developed an interest in politics, fired by his passion for equality, that every person had a right to be accepted for who they were. This resulted in Matt becoming a first-year political science major at the University of Wyoming whose campus was situated in Laramie, just two hours away from his hometown of Casper. Following the turmoil of the previous three years, going to college near his family and friends felt like the best option, with his parents working away in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. In October 98, Matthew had settled into the town, joined the university's LGBT plus group, and was happy spending time off campus with his friends and representing the Wyoming Environmental Council. On the 6th of October, Matthew entered the Fireside Lounge in Laramie, a well-known dive bar. 
That night, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson had been drinking in the bar, and noticed Matt was alone. The pair joined him with the intention of taking advantage of his current state, and pretending to be gay to lower his guard. After a few drinks, the pair offered to give Matthew a lift home. Matt, always looking for the good in people, accepted and joined the two as they left the bar, entered McKinney's pickup, and left town. Let's take a short break. When we return, we have descriptions that you may find upsetting. Matt had just left the Far Side Lounge with McKinley and Henderson after the pair had offered Matt a ride home. Little did they know they had a sinister ulterior motive. They drove Matt to a remote rural location. McKinley pulled a gun out on Matt, forcing him to hand over his wallet. Matt had just $20 on him. McKinney turned off the road, drove down a dirt track, before pulling up at the edge of a rocky prairie. Henderson dragged Matt out of the pickup truck and pulled him over to a wooden fence. Henderson then began tying Matt to the fence with a cord from a washing line. At this moment, McKinney began beating Matt around the head and face with the butt of his gun. Matt was struck approximately 21 times around the face and head in what can only be described as a frenzied attack. McKinney fractured Matt's skull several times. The town sheriff described his injuries as dramatic as those seen in a high-speed accident. The pair tortured Matt by setting him alight after his beating, like a nailed-up coyote. Matt was broken, bleeding and burnt. McKinney and Henderson stole his shoes, his credit card and the rest of his money, leaving Matt tied to the fence to die. Let's take a short break. When we come back we'll hear the testimony of the teenager who discovered Matt. Matt had been abandoned, tied to the fence in the cold prairie throughout the night and for most of the following day. It had been 18 hours since McKinney and Henderson had driven away. Local teenager Aaron Creefels came. Aaron had just fallen off his bike when he noticed what he thought at first was a scarecrow abandoned on the fields. While he considered what was in front of him, he realised that the figure was breathing. Well, I, um, I took off on my bicycle around uh, 5 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday from my dorm. I just kind of felt like going for a ride, so I uh, I went up to the top of Cactus Canyon, and I'm not super familiar with that area, so on my way back down, I, I didn't know where I was going. I was just sort of picking the way to go, which now... It just makes me think that God wanted me to find him because there's no way that I was going to go that way. So uh, I was in some deep ass sand and I wanted to turn around, but for some reason I kept going and uh, I went along and there was this rock on the ground and I just drilled it. I went over the handlebars and ended up on the ground. So uh, I got up and I was just kind of dusting myself off and I was looking around and I noticed something which ended up 
to be Matt. And he, he was just lying there by a fence. And I just, I thought it was a scarecrow. I was like, Halloween's coming up. I thought it was a Halloween gag, so uh, I didn't think much of it. So I got my bike, walked it around the fence, and uh, got closer to him, and I, I noticed his hair. That was a major key to me, noticing it was a human being, was the hair. Because I just thought it was a, a dummy. Seriously, I, I even noticed... Uh, I noticed the, the chest moving up and down. I still thought it was a dummy, you know? I, I, I thought it was just, like, some mechanism. But when I saw the hair, well, I knew it was a human being. So, I ran to the nearest house, and uh, I just ran as fast as I could, and um, I called the police. A short while later, local police officer Reggie Flutie became the first responder to arrive at the scene. I responded to the call. When I got there, the first, at first, the only thing I could see was partially someone's feet. So I got out of my vehicle, and I raced over. I seen what appeared to be a young man, 13, 14 years old, because he was so tiny lying on his back. And he was tied to the bottom end of a pole. I did the best I could. The gentleman that was lying on the ground, Matthew Shepard, he was covered in blood all over his head. There was dry blood underneath him and he was barely breathing. He was doing the best he could. I was going to breathe for him. But I couldn't get his mouth open. His mouth wouldn't open for me. He was... He was... Covered in it. Like I said. Dried blood. Partially dried blood. All over his head. The only place he didn't have any blood was... On his face where he had appeared to have been crying. His head was distorted. He didn't look normal. It looked as if he had a real harsh head wound. He was tied to the fence. His hands were thumbs out in what we call a cuffing position, the way we handcuff people. He was tied with a real thin white rope, about four inches off the ground. And his uh, shoes were missing. He was tied extremely tight. I used my boot knife and tried to slip it between the rope and his wrists. And I had to be extremely careful not to harm Matthew any further. He was bound so tight. I finally got the knife through there. I'm sorry. We rolled him over to his left side, and when we did that, he quit breathing. Immediately, we put him back on his back, and that was 
just enough of an adjustment, it gave me enough room to cut him free. I seen the EMS unit trying to get to the location. Once the ambulance got there, we put a neck collar on him and scooted him onto a backboard and underneath the fence. Then Rob drove him to Iverson Hospital's emergency room. After Flutie tried reviving him, he was rushed to the Iverson Memorial Hospital, where the ER realised that he required the advanced trauma unit at Poosh Valley Hospital in Fort Collins. After the attack on Matt, McKinney and Henderson returned to the town, high on the rage of what they had just done. McKinney picked a fight with Hispanic youth Jeremy Herrera. Police officer Flint Walters arrived on the scene, arresting them both on the spot. Walters began a search of McKinney for evidence of drink or drugs. He found what looked like blood smears on McKinney's gun butt, but crucially also Matt's shoes and credit card. They were charged with kidnapping, attempted murder and aggravated robbery. At some point, Henderson and McKinney persuaded their girlfriends to provide alibis. However, this would come back to haunt them. Portray Valley Hospital managed to reach Matt's parents, and they were already on the flight back from Saudi Arabia. On arrival to the hospital, they were shocked by the extent of Matt's injuries. Dennis described seeing Matt's bandage and bruised face as so severe, confirmed that it was him by his braces. On their arrival, it had been a whole two days since Matt had entered the fireside. Here's Matt's surgeon. I was working in the emergency room the night that Matthew Shepard was brought in. I don't think that um, any of us can remember seeing a patient in that condition before. For those of us who worked in the big city hospitals, we're used to it, but we have some people who haven't worked in those hospitals. And it's just, it's not something you expect here in Laramie. I mean, you expect it. You expect to see these injuries from a car going down a hill at 80 miles an hour, this, this horrendous, terrible thing. But you don't expect to see that from someone doing this for another person. The ambulance reports that it was a beating, so we knew. I mean, God, so you, like, you like to think that, no, no, this isn't us. This is someone from out of town, drives through, beat up on somebody. I mean, stuff like that happens, and it happens in Laramie, but when there's someone who's been beaten repeatedly, this is something that offends us. I, I think that's the right word to use. It offends us. Now, the strange thing is, 20 minutes before Matthew came in, Aaron McKinney was brought in by his girlfriend. I guess he'd gone back into town later that night and gone to some bar fight. Now at this point, I don't know that there's a connection. At all. So I'm working on Aaron and I tell him to wait. And I go in to treat Matthew. So there's Aaron in one room of the ER. And his victim, Matthew, in another room two doors down. Now as soon as we saw Matthew, it was very obvious that his care was beyond our care capabilities. I called the neurosurgeon of Perdre Valley, and he was on the road in, in an hour and 15 minutes, I think. Then two days later, I found out the connection, and I was very, I was very struck. They were kids. They were both my patients, and 
They were two kids. I took care of both of them, of both of their bodies, and for a brief moment, I wondered if this is how God feels when he looks down at us, how we are all his kids, our bodies, our souls. And I felt a great deal of compassion for both of them. The attack had been so brutal that it had damaged Matt's brainstem. Doctors struggled to regulate his heart rate, body temperature, and his vital organs. The injuries he had incurred were deemed so severe, Dr. Cantway deemed he couldn't operate. News of the attack had received national attention. Evidence from the bartender showed that McKinney and Henderson had pretended to be gay in order to entice Matt into their company. However, McKinney and Henderson stated that they had attacked Matt because he had allegedly made a pass at them. This highlighted the fact that Matt had been a victim of a violent attack because of his sexuality. Outside the hospital, friends, family and even celebrities held vigil by candlelight. They were also unfortunately attracted to the attention of preacher Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. He is the prime example of Christianity himself, talking to the news in 1998. Tell me why you're here today, sir. Well, I already told everybody in the civilised world, I'll tell you again. Uh, we, uh, this is an important event. We haven't seen anything quite like this or over this kind of subject since uh, we picketed Randy Schultz's funeral in uh, San Francisco. Uh, we want to inject, or hope to inject, a little sanity and uh, gospel truth into what's uh, shaping up fast to be some kind of an orgy of uh, homosexual uh, propaganda and lies. It's like a Cecil B. DeMille epic going on here. It's not okay to be gay. We're sorry that young boy got uh, killed. Uh, I've told the governor here that if they convict anybody for that and they have the death penalty, I'll come uh, at my expense and flip the switch. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is this method by these uh, militant uh, uh, activist homosexual groups to use this as a fulcrum to propagate their filthy lifestyle and their filthy program and their uh, degenerate uh, political agenda. That's what they're doing. Matt had been on life support for six days. He never regained consciousness. And on the 12th of October, 21-year-old Matthew Wayne Shepherd died. Like the good, caring son that he was, um, he was able to remove from them the guilt or stress of having to make that decision. They said that uh, he came into the world premature and he left the world premature. They are most grateful for the time that they had to spend. McKinney and Henderson's conviction was now upgraded to first degree murder. They could now face the death penalty. In episode two, we look into the conviction and trial of McKinney and Henderson next time on the Hate Crime Podcast. You can click and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
The Hate Crime Podcast was written, produced and presented by Chris Britton with H.N. Lloyd and Simon Porter. The witnesses were played by the cast of the Techni Productions Limited Performance of the Laramie Project. And our theme tune, New World Order, has been composed and performed by Neil Roberts. The Hate Crime Podcast is part of the P-Podcasting Network. You can check out our other shows, the Pub Politics Podcast and the Tragical History Tour by going to our Twitter pages at Pub Politics Pod and at Hate Crime Pod. See you next time. Thank you.